Industrial design is something that a lot of manufacturers used to outsource. Companies would design a product and then contract with a firm of outside design consultants to slap a good-looking skin on it and hope for the best. But in the last decade or so, lots of companies have gotten design religion. Design has been brought in-house, where it can shape products from the very get-go. There's an obvious source of this idea, Apple. This week we talked to Oliver Sile, the Senior Design Director of Belkin International's Innovation Design Group. Belkin is an accessory company based in Los Angeles that has grown into one of the biggest suppliers of mobile accessories. It has a big portfolio of products, from iPhone and iPad cases to battery packs, surge protectors, networking gear, and its line of Wemo home automation products. We talked to Sile about Belkin's products and design process, the surprising complexity of USB cables and why they cost so much, and of course, why Apple has had such an enormous influence on design and manufacturing. So we're talking to Oliver Sile, and you are the uh, Senior Design Director of Belkin, which is based down in LA. And Belkin is uh, the accessory maker that makes a, a ton of products. But you guys got started years ago and relatively modestly. Can you tell me a little bit about Belkin and what, what you guys are up to these days? Yeah, Belkin actually was founded more than 30 years ago in Los Angeles in, uh, by our founder and, uh, and CEO, Chet Pipkin. And mm-hmm. he started out making cables in his mom's kitchen. It's a great story. It's a really authentic story. So we still make a lot of cables today. That is one of the big areas of our business. Uh, but we also make many, many other things related to much higher technology devices. Anything around the mobile computing lifestyle you can think of. Love smartphone accessories from power to protection to personalization, surge protection, um, anything you can think of with regards to mounting and holding and protecting of devices, whether it's a smartphone or a laptop, for example, we make it. Right. So yeah, and also you're into home automation with the Wemo line of products. Yeah, Belkin also is the the parent company of uh, Wemo, and Wemo is our line of home automation smart home products, uh, particularly in the world of switching, uh, app control devices for the home. That's our brand. We pioneered that industry. What's um, the biggest, um, you know, the growing, the most popular growing line of, of, of the business? What's most popular at the moment? Well, we, we constantly evolve in this company. You know, you'd be surprised how much innovation and work is happening in, in this field. We are incredibly excited about the uh, new field of USB-C technology, anything around USB 3.1. That's really the future of connectivity. Uh, As mundane as cables may appear, uh, the world is changing rapidly in that field, and people who know how to make really high-quality, safe, well-made cables like us with our history – will be asked and tasked to make really complicated cables, believe it or not. Uh, So that's one big area. We are very excited about things like Thunderbolt 3, which is, again, really rewarding companies who've invested very heavily in quality and engineering and technology. Uh, This is not an easy thing to make, and Belkin has uh, invested really deeply in that. So we're very excited about those connectivity solutions. We also do uh, things in the world of screen protection. We do some really fun things there with um, making that experience better for people. What else? Um, you know, powering your devices faster and safer, batteries, all of that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm interested in, in you know, USB-C and, and Thunderbolt. Of course, this is, you know, somewhat controversial in the Apple world with the new MacBook Pros. 
um, there seems to be a huge outcry from the uh, the Apple community about the the lack of other connectors on the, the new MacBook Pros. Um, you know, what, what's what's your position on that? How do you feel about it? Well, I would actually be look at it from a slightly different angle. I really applaud Apple for for making these uh, very tough decisions, if you if you will. You know, sometimes deciding what not to do is harder than what deciding what to do. And this very courageous and uh, leading, <laughs> right. um, you know, thought is, is, I think, something that I really do appreciate. Well, and, the word courageous, yeah, I mean, just pop it in the head because that's, of course, what Phil Schiller used to, to talk about losing the headphone jack on the iPhone 7. <laughs> and, you know, and, and of course, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a controversial term in the Apple community, right? I mean, it, it, you know, there's been a lot of uh, tweet storms about um, and hashtags about using courage. It it is it is a difficult decision though, isn't it? You know, to move forward in such a radical way. It is, and I think Apple has done a fantastic job uh, pushing technology forward that way. And right. that's the business we're in, of course, in helping people to make that transition. When companies such as Apple, who are really leading our technological uh, innovation forward, when people are then bridging the the time in which they still own a lot of legacy devices to the future. And our world is full of parallels to this kind of thing. Uh, if we didn't have people who, who would really push courageously and offer us uh, products that can help us make a leap forward in technology, make things that are thinner, lighter, faster that way, then we'd probably not evolve that fast. Is, is Thunderbolt 3 the, the, you know, the one connector to, to rule them all? Because it seemed like bit, there was a lot of turmoil in the last few years with all kinds of different connectors. Is, is this one that people, the industry, do you think is going to standardize on? Well, USB-C and 3.1, which people often use interchangeably, which it shouldn't be, uh, has the, you know, USB-C is the connector that is used for Thunderbolt 3, which is actually really fantastic, which means they are reverse compatible. So a Thunderbolt 3 equipped device can use a USB-C plug Mm-hmm. a USB-C cable. And if you have the USB-C cable that matches the specifications uh, of the speeds that you wish to achieve, then all of that is reverse compatible as well. So you can use a Thunderbolt 3 plug to with a USB-C 3.1 cable to connect to anything down mm-hmm. the road. You know, for a few years from now, uh, hopefully we'll be in a world in which we have far fewer disparate connectors lying around our houses Right, homes yeah. Homes in our, in our junk drawers. Yeah. Uh, and, and we'll be able to just truly, really use one cable type, one connector type to connect most of our uh, mobile devices. And I think that's something to look forward to, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's controversial at the moment because you can't connect, you know, an iPhone 7 to uh, the new MacBook Pro. But a lot of the Android um, handsets are, are standardizing on USB C for charging. You know, so do you think this Apple is pushing the industry towards you know this this uh, universal adoption? Well, I can't say how long these connectors will be around each of them. However, I think USB C is that universal connector that you know, with the appropriate adapter, in some cases, uh, you'll be able to use for any kind of connectivity. So ultimately, what will happen is cables, the connector, the, the real connecting link between devices will ultimately hopefully be kind of a homogenous type. So mm-hmm. you you will hopefully be able to see in the future 
much fewer different types. Some manufacturers may choose to use proprietary connectors for their devices for a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if what what Apple's plans are for Lightning and for USB-C. I can't say, but as long as there is the need for uh, high quality uh, and safe connectors and adapters, then that's the kind of work that we do. That's what we're really great at, and that's what we we're proud to put a lot of resources into. Do you think uh, actually, you know, a question about Lightning? Do you think Apple will will uh, continue to use Lightning or or go with um, USB-C? I I really can't speak for what Apple's plans are. Uh, you know, each has their own advantages. Right. What are the advantages of Lightning? Is there a, is there an advantage of Lightning over um, USB-C? I, again, I think I can't speak for what Apple perceives their their advantages to be. Uh, there are some there are some technological differences between the technologies, and obviously, you know, we are not trying to argue with Apple over what connector to use. So, you know, we're, we're really heavily focusing our uh, efforts on understanding and perfecting USB-C at the moment. Uh, Lightning is comparatively maybe a simpler um, thing to wrestle with. Uh, so, yeah. Simpler? Why, why is it simpler? So USB-C is simpler because it is a universal and a, a specified technology that uh, isn't owned by any any company in particular. That's a great benefit to, I think, the whole industry where we can all refer to a singular connector type that will ultimately, hopefully, work for most devices independent of who manufactures them if the manufacturer chooses to adhere to the specifications um, determined by the industrial forum that created the specification for USB 3.1. So that means... Uh, you can use a cable for any device, independent of who makes it, ultimately. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, which, you know, leads me to the obvious question is, is that why do you think Apple uses Lightning? Because they control the, you know, the Lightning standard? Yeah, I mean, I, can, I can't speak to, for Apple's ultimate reasons for any of this, but, you know, th that certainly may have something to do with it. Right, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was hoping you would just speculate. <laughs> I know that you don't, uh, uh, an educated guess, you know what I mean? Because it, uh, what about the EU ruling? Didn't the, the European Union uh, rule that uh, uh, mobile device makers had to standardize on, on a um, one uh, charging and data connection? Yeah, and, and, and that has certainly spurred on a lot of this development of USB-C and, and USB 3.1, ultimately, which is just a fantastic thing in my book. So personally, I'm, I'm always happy when, uh, when governing bodies decide to do smart things. Uh, which may not always be the case for for in every case, <laughs> right. uh, but in this particular case, I'm I'm really excited. You know, this is to me a little bit akin to, you know, banning PVC from from uh, um, packaging and, and other uh, environmental regulations. We have too many things in our junk drawers, and they end right. up in lan in landfill. And electronic waste is no joke. There is a lot of waste happening. There's a lot of environmental uh, potential for environmental damage. And we we simply need, in some cases, to make, to have governments help us make those transitions to give incentives to move in the right direction. This certainly is the right direction, and you know that USB C cable. It really is a technological marvel. The way the connectors are designed, and if you um, just think about the the complexity of engineering that goes into making something like that, it's it wouldn't have happened if this regulation hadn't happened. So I'm, I, I'm quite uh, happy about that. 
What, what, how, how complex is it? What, where does the complexity come from? How, how much engineering does go into it? Yeah, that's, that's actually at the heart of what uh, we've invested so much energy into. So th there are two components here, of course. The first component is the connector itself, the USB-C connector itself. As small as and uh, simple as it may appear from the outside, it really is it's no simple feat to create something like that. It can be reversed so that both sides do the same thing. But it has 24 leads inside of it. So the 24 uh, independent wires, if you will, uh, run through a cable that is full 3.1 specification. And a cable like that simply, uh, you know, be because it is interchangeable, it, it can be reversed and used upside down. So that's, it's really uh, fantastic because you just simply cannot make a mistake. Right. And, yeah, and, yeah. You know, so that's wonderful. So that means now if you want to have 24 leads on a cable at that scale, that requires people to build engineering and manufacturing capabilities that are far more advanced than anything else in this realm of, of accessories. So mm -hmm. you cannot even compare that to a lightning cable. That I think, if I, I could be wrong, I think it has nine connectors. So the complexity and the reliance upon precision engineering and quality control is far greater. So imagine this in the USB 3.1 uh, cable used in a uh, in a, a device that is compatible with this is actually uh, capable of transferring about a hundred watts, up to a hundred watts of power through it to power the device while also um, transferring data, audio, video through the same cable. So while a, let's say, a lightning or USB micro B cable, um, if it's not correctly manufactured, may be a nuisance. A cable that might give your laptop power, like uh, we, we have some devices that allow you to do that. So maybe your laptop gets 85 watts of power from, from that cable while transferring data, audio, and video. Now imagine something is miswired. Now you're frying your laptop. That's <laughs> right. been, the media has has uh, seen that already. So it's incredibly important for people to understand that this is not the same thing as a standard USB A to B cable. You know, something you plug into your scanner or your printer. It's an entirely different animal, and I expect very interesting things to happen here down the road when people start fully um, embracing this technology, when manufacturers do, when people do, when they first experience the difference between a really cheaply made cable and a more high quality, more well-manufactured cable. Are there any other components, um, you know, sort of uh, chips or, you know, uh, circuit boards that, that go into the cable? Uh, you know, I, I, if you open up the connector on some of the you know some of the cables don't they have uh, little tiny circuit boards that are, that are quite complicated yeah I'm, I'm really glad that you're you're pointing this out because of course i i got hung up on some something else but a, a usb 3.1 cable requires the inclusion of some uh, ic's in the cable heads that help manage the handshake between mm -hmm. the devices mm -hmm. and that is needed because as i mentioned when you choose to do more um advanced things with your cable, you have also the potential of causing some serious damage. Uh, you could, for example, theoretically plug two power supplies into each other. Oh, right. You know, yeah, what yeah. happens if you did that? That wouldn't be very funny uh, unless mm -hmm. the chips inside were able to identify what's plugged in and in which order power should be or should not be uh, allowed to flow. So mm -hmm. that's uh, very important as well. So again, the potential for disaster rises up 
uh, if you use a cheaply or poorly manufactured cable. Yeah, 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 right. And of course, you know, people uh, I, I think are sometimes um, dumbfounded that cables can be so expensive, and they uh, market up to profiteering, but they're actually very complex pieces of technology. Yeah, and, uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the parallel I would draw is, uh, you know, we've we've all bought a DVD player that came with an HDMI cable in the box and then maybe decided to use that cable or spend much more money in some cases to upgrade that cable. And the result is, you know, maybe a clearer image uh, that some people may and others may not perceive so clearly. And there, arguably, the difference between the, the choices is marginal. You you could argue it's a luxurious thing to do to buy a more expensive cable. This is a, an entirely different thing where you can really cause damage to your device by using a cheap cable. Uh, and that's why, you know, as a company, Belkin has many years ago made a commitment to never compromising on quality. And USB-C has really given us the opportunity to further invest in that and to really, really put a lot of emphasis into delivering nothing but the highest quality that we back up with great warranties, etc. But that is because we fully expect um, some things to happen down the road here that people didn't expect that uh, they aren't used to. You know, this is just simply something that we've never done with our mobile technology, with our cables that we've been using for so many years. Do you have any specific, uh, you know, examples of the kind of thing you're thinking about? You know, the kind of stuff, the kind of trouble that people might get into. Yeah. So um, there's a, a very vocal engineer in the Google organization. Uh, his name is Benson Young. He's been kind of an advocate, an early advocate for USB-C 3.1 specifically technology testing. And so he's been because Google has been in the forefront of USB-C uh, usage in their laptops, Chromebooks as well. And uh, so very quickly after the first USB-C equipped devices launched to the market, we saw many, many cheaply made, um, poorly manufactured cables on the market. And Benson uh, has started testing them and he actually has fried his laptop on occasion and been very vocal about that uh, online. So that's an example. So I would, I would think uh, now that we are going to see a huge upsurge in USB-C adoption for the purposes of data and power transfer. Uh, so these the combination of a power supply and a connectivity between devices, uh, we're going to start seeing that kind of stuff happen. So where now you could argue, should I buy the cheap lightning cable or should I buy the expensive lightning cable? <laughs> yeah. You know, right. so, yeah. do I buy a Belkin cable that lasts me five years or to buy a cheap cable for five bucks that may last three weeks? That's it's, a matter yeah. of luxurious choice. Um, buying the wrong cable could actually fry your device. Yeah, I think you have a you know there's a bit of an uphill battle to be faced here. I think because um, you know uh, a lot of people I think will go for the cheaper uh, the cheaper cable, but it's going to be a false economy, I, I guess. Yeah, we'll find out. It just this just has never been tested before, right? This kind of scenario. It's new, uh, and we'll see how well it works. We really are at Belkin entirely committed to never compromising on safety and quality. Uh, and that's where we see just the opportunity to make the point. You you don't want to buy a cheaply made, poorly made, poorly warranted cable from a manufacturer that might not have the kind of technological uh, insights and capabilities as we do. 
Right. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of technical stuff, and of course, you're, you know, you're, what's the role of industrial design in the creation of, of of products like these, and you know, highly technical products. Yeah, you can of course make a case um, for the fact that this might not have anything to do with ID and user experience, and I think you'd be partially incorrect. So the role of industrial design and user experience at Belkin is tremendous. Uh, we actually pioneered in our headquarters here in in, uh, in Los Angeles about 17 years ago, bringing industrial design, user experience, engineering, all the engineering capabilities in-house. That was uh, for, for a company in our industry, that was not something that was commonly done. Right. Well, how would it normally be done? It would be contracted out? Yeah. It, so at best, it would be contracted out to uh, consultants, but at worst, it would just be non-existent. It would just be a direct import um, products from overseas, cheaply manufactured, uh, labels affixed and sold. Uh, that was really the way most things were made back then. And in the, the mobile accessories and computing accessories world back then, we, we knew that we wanted to be a company that was based on different values. We um, started the uh, innovation design group back then, um, Ernesto Quinteros, who is now the chief design officer at Johnson & Johnson, uh, started our group. And this was, when was this again? What, what, uh, this, I'm was sorry, you said this was in 2000. This was back okay. in 2000. Uh huh. And this is about the same time that Apple did exactly the same thing, right? Oh, actually, and they did a bit earlier, but is, is that it, would have been it, earlier. Yes. Yeah, a, a few years earlier, like in the uh, early nineties. Yes. Yes. But the same thing, yeah. They brought you know industrial design in house when it tended to be uh, contracted out. Well, I think there is such a benefit to this, and and it's just it requires some wisdom on the on the part of uh, corporate leadership. When you have mm -hmm. corporate leaders who really truly believe that making better products is the way to go and not just making cheaper products quickly, mm -hmm. and you truly want to differentiate on the basis of product and user experience quality, then you just simply shouldn't leave, uh, leave the job to be done by folks on the outside because mm -hmm. folks on the outside will always be at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that's done on purpose. You want to have people from the outside help you make solutions happen. That's mm -hmm. often very, very helpful and valuable. Other times, uh, especially in a in a in an industry in which speed is so critical, yeah. having an internal group is just um, you know, an unbeatable way to get really great products that really match your your corporate vision uh, to market. So how how does it work exactly? How how does it you know the groups, the user experience, and the industrial design help to make better products? So at Belkin, we're really really proud of the way we've managed to work together with the cross-functional groups in our in our company. Uh, the industrial design team is engaged in the creation of every single product from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We uh, have very deep connections inside the organization. So any product discussions, whether it's a value proposition to begin with, what what the product should be uh, should be and and how it should be doing its job um, are done uh, from the very beginning with the, including the design team. And it's a great cross-functional exercise to to bring the business folks together with the sales folks and the engineers and the designers all together and pulling on the same string. Mm -hmm. So there's very short distances. Um, it's a very passionate uh, group of people here that uh, often have spent many, many years in this organization, know it deeply and appreciate it deeply. And so that's how we do it. We, um, 
we really collaborate. And that's how you have to work as an industrial designer. You have to, you have to listen. You have to listen very intently to the customer. You have to keep your eye on making sure you listen to both the internal customer, your peers in the different parts of the organization, but also really ultimately uphold the flag for the end user. I mean, that's really nice. how we see our job. We want to try to understand what people want. We're inspired by people um, to realize the potential of technology. That is our, our corporate value statement. We really are inspired by that. We constantly reiterate uh, that this is how we want to do our business. So we're in the, the design team's role here is to enforce that uh, and to put our best foot forward in making things that are not just good looking, but also work really, really well. And uh, yeah, that's in a nutshell. I'm trying to so make that understandable. Yeah, right. So you, you help define the product and you help figure out what it exactly would be. And then you also sort of oversee it and, and, and guide it and how it actually ends up being made. Because I'm sure there must be a lot of compromises during the, the entire process, right? Uh, especially with, with manufacturing and with costs. Are, th are those the kind of things that you guys help mediate? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the word cost is uh, it's a very interesting thing to discuss. Um, I used to always say that when we first started that, um, you know, we were trying to make a lot of things for very low cost and um, it's often a matter of great compromise. And and um, our approach at Belkin to this subject matter has evolved so dramatically where now we, we design for what the best product should be. Cost is no longer the primary driver of what we do. We believe that the best product is the product that will be most successful and uh, believe it or not, it's not so much of a struggle uh, at Belkin. You know, I think every industrial designer, especially folks in consultancies, like to tell stories about how difficult clients are when it comes to cost. And, um, uh, you know, we all have these horror stories, you know, clients not listening and things like that. We don't really have these fights at Belkin so much. We're really pretty well aligned. So our job is to help guide the team to what the thing that we're working on should cost, you know, based on consumer insights, understanding the, the, the world around us and the competitive landscape, as well as what kind of job this product can do for people and what it should be worth. And often you find these surprising notions that maybe a product category is um, filled with commoditized cheap stuff, but you can make something that costs more, but people still want that just mm -hmm. because it's better and more desirable. So that's the role we play. We, we all here in, the, in, in every organization, people have all kinds of skill sets and we require each other's guidance to ultimately find the right solutions. So that's what, what I think is really working great at Belkin. It's just a really skilled group of people. So do you have an example uh, of a, a product you worked on recently and, and what role um, you know, ID played in that? Yeah, there's a couple of things we've recently launched. Um, so one thing that, that we just announced is the uh, battery pack for the Apple Watch and iPhone. Mm -hmm. So that's a um, the Charge Valet, the Valet Charger. I, I keep messing up the names of our own products. It's very embarrassing <laughs> because for me, for me, these yeah. products have code names and I can never remember the actual name. Right. So my apologies. But, but so, okay. <laughs> so it's the, the Valet Charger Power Pack. And the Valet Charger Power Pack is was really 
born from a, a use case evaluation that came out of the design team very quickly after the launch of the uh, Apple Watch. We realized um, that every person who is going to be owning an Apple Watch is also owning an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there literally is 0% difference, theoretically at least. Right, because you have to have one to use the other. You do. And uh, and we also knew through Consumer Insights that people charge their phones overnight. Uh, we also know that people charge their watches overnight uh, from Consumer Insights. So we're, we very quickly made the connection that people are going to hopefully appreciate a product that can let you do both uh, with a battery pack. So we developed this product, the charge, uh, the valet charger, that combines a built-in watch charging magnetic puck. Uh, that uh, That is the, the original Apple watch charger. It's built in with a battery pack. So it's really compact and allows you to recharge your watch and your phone as you're traveling or as you, you're going about your day without having to carry extra cables. You know, extra cables are not something that we like to do. So there is a product that was born directly from the ID team, and we we just launched that. We also um, have worked on a number of products that, you know, have have price points that are maybe beyond what ordinarily people might imagine would be successful in the, for for this kind of accessories world. There's a um, a product we are very excited about that's uh, for sale at Apple. It's the uh, it's also called a valet, and that's the combined uh, lightning and watch charger that uh, is exclusively assorted at the Apple Store. Um, that product is one hundred and thirty dollars, which is pretty expensive for products coming out of uh, an accessory manufacturer. However, it's been tremendously successful for us because people like the solution and they, they love the industrial design. Uh, it's called the Powerhouse Charge Dock, and to me kind of a victory of industrial design user experience over what a rational salesperson would have maybe wanted. They may have wanted to make it less expensive, which wouldn't have allowed us to have the kind of budget to put into the product. So that's a product made for what the best product should be and not what the most maybe exciting price point is. And regardless of that, uh, it's been incredibly successful. So there are many victories like that, uh, and I call them victories because, you know, obviously you can't help but be proud of um, maybe finding those nuggets in our daily work where we really feel like industrial design makes a difference. Right. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this is very resonant to the Apple fan. This sounds very, very much like about exactly what Apple is doing, putting, you know, the user, the the, the quality of the products, making the best products and, and hoping that, you know, trusting that people will pay for them. Uh, you know, and that and that you have to pay to get quality, and, and of course, you know, Apple's been extremely successful at doing that. Do you think? You know, I think in general, this is a lesson that is has percolated throughout the consumer electronics industry. Would you agree, or do you think there's still a, you know, there's there's still a, a you know, I, there's definitely a history and a legacy of of trying to make the cheapest products, but I think um, in general, you know, this this prioritizing of design and user experience is something that the design industry has learned. Do you think? Oh, I I can't even agree more with what you said. So, and I want to credit Apple with that as well. You know, the accessories industry was not courageous enough and confident enough to make products for a mass audience and and believe in products like like those like I was just describing for a mass audience. Until maybe very recently, you know, the, it's the accessories world. Let's put it this way: is a tough industry. 
That's that's mm-hmm. a tough industry. It's a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you know, not with USB C and Thunderbolt and things of that nature, and uh, in- integrating lightning charge technology and, and magnetic Apple Watch charging technology into products. That's not simple. But the barrier to entry in the accessories world is generally low. And often the there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of upon companies who try to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. But to be truly successful, it's not about making a sale of uh, an object. To be truly successful, you must establish a reputation of quality. And that needs to extend through all the touch points of um, the object that you're selling to people, the package it's in, how it's explained to you, how easy it is to use, how pleasant it is to, to be in your environment, how it makes you feel, all of that. And the fact that this is now something that has entered the, the I think, public mindset to a degree, you know, where people are aware of that. Yeah, yeah. Is, they, yeah. It's a huge achievement. And I think it's an accomplishment that has been, it's, it's something that has been accomplished to a very large degree, I think, by Apple. You know, mm-hmm. They've really celebrated this more than any other company in our time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really credit them a lot. And it has really inspired a lot of companies to to uh, try to aim in the same direction. Right. Uh, and, and Belkin is certainly one of those companies that's taken a lot of inspiration from that. Uh, so we credit them uh, dearly. And they've uh, they've really done a phenomenal job at that. And, and it's also helped making consumers uh, make consumers willing to actually pay a little bit more to get a better product because they just enjoy that more and they expect that so we we hope that uh, we can we hope that to um to continue on this on this path for many years right absolutely yeah 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 definitely i think everyone uh, everyone benefits uh, from this uh, except of course <laughs> the low, the uh, the lower end uh, accessory makers you, you mentioned packaging you know has have you guys uh, you know, change your packaging, paid more attention to packaging? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so packaging in an organization is also an industrial design user experience-led uh, discipline where we work very closely with our engineering teams and our marketing teams to create uh, what we would call a, a good packaging experience. And uh, that is not necessarily just out-of-box experience. That's a term that's been used for many years. But it extends past that. It's how you how you interact with your package when it's on a shelf, how it uh, how it uh, presents the product, etc. So it's also something we take very very seriously, and we're very proud to to be able to invest more time and energy into that aspect. You know, often. You know, you get a really nicely made product that may look wonderful uh, in images on the web. When you receive it, it may not may not be a great way to to unbox it. If you've ever cut your finger on a on a package, that is not yeah, your yeah. fault. <laughs> you know, we always laugh about that. It's uh, I often blame design for for issues with um, user experience. It's just uh, something we take very seriously. We want to make people feel smart when they use our products. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, we pay great attention to that. So you design the packages, you know, you you pay as much attention to that as you do anything else. We certainly try. I think that's, it comes as a surprise to some people, you know, that, that that's a situation, but it's very much part of the experience, right? I think it's an, uh, an, an intrinsic part of what's part of your perception. Uh, many people maybe are preconditioned through many years of, 
of their life experience to not pay attention to that. They may not even realize it so much. But I think all of us know when we buy a new product that we really love, if the package also speaks the same language and has the same sort of exudes the same kind of spirit of that nice product that you've just purchased, then that just really rounds out the picture. And conversely, a poorly made package can really destroy all of that. You know, mm-hmm. how many times have I bought something that I love and I, I I hated the package, and then that really put a little bit of a dark cloud over everything. So, you know, are we talking about the first world problems? Maybe. Maybe, but that's something that we all aspire to improve consistently. It's uh, even it extends into recyclability and how, what you're supposed to do with the box after you've uh, mm-hmm. you've finished your interaction with the package. You know, do we do we insinuate um, uh, like for example, I, you know, you and I probably have shelves and shelves of Apple boxes. The insinuation is, <laughs> how did you know <laughs> they're so beautifully because I, I can tell. I think yeah. I can tell by by your uh, your history. It's funny, yeah. They yeah. don't get uh, they they're the ones that don't tend to they get you know you keep. You do, I kept a big iMac box for years, and it's because they're so beautifully made. You don't want to throw them right. away. So yeah. the, the insinuation is, I give you a box that is so beautiful that. I'm pretty sure you're going to keep it. That makes sense because a lot of people do hold on to device boxes uh, because they're maybe unsure about whether they might still need that down the road. And, uh, you know, we all have bought um, electronic packages that then stack up in your garage and they're just ugly brown boxes. Well, why not make those beautiful? So conversely, something that is not intended to be kept around for a product, maybe it's a cable package, for example. Well, we want to make sure you understand how easy it is to disassemble it, to recycle it properly. So right. there are very subtle, nuanced uh, design user experience aspects that we want to pay close attention to. Huh. Okay. That's that's funny. Yeah. So you're actually making sure you know you want you want people to recycle uh, the you know the cable package or the the product that you know maybe they want they're not going to treasure so uh, so much. So you're, you're you're giving them clues to that in the design. Yeah, I think it's an, an aspect of thoughtful you know, predicting of what people might want to do. And that's the the job of an industrial designer, I think, is to many, to, to a large extent, is to, to be a bit of a psychologist and try to, try to figure out how people would act without thinking too much about it, you know, and help them do intuitively the right thing and sort of gen- like gently steer people in the right direction. And that's, I think, the job of a sophisticated industrial designer. Um, so you guys have also been getting into HomeKit recently, and um, has that proven to be a challenge? Well, we actually have not, <laughs> ironically. So we're uh, so as I mentioned to you recently, we uh, we do have our own line of smart home products in the Wemo product line, uh, and that is currently our home offering. So that is Wemo, and uh, Wemo currently uh, does not work with HomeKit. Oh, okay. I beg your pardon. Is there a reason for that? So I, I absolutely pardon you for that. Uh, and, and most people have a hard time maybe understanding those subtle differences. <laughs> um, yeah, so so obviously the people that we best suited to answering that particular technical question are in the Wemo organization. So um, maybe that's a better conversation to have. But in a nutshell, you know, we – you know, obviously, we really, really respect what Apple's done in this field. We, uh, we really 
are excited about HomeKit, and we're going to see some exciting things in the HomeKit world. Uh, Wemo is just not exactly the same thing as HomeKit. Uh, the goals of the Wemo product line are to have a slightly different user experience and to offer a broader uh, interaction so that uh, it would require us to essentially redesign the entire product um, to make it HomeKit compatible. But that's, again, it's uh, it's more of a technical question at this point, and I just don't really know that much about it. Okay, yeah, not, not a philosophical one or... No. Uh, yeah, a competitive no, no, no. one. No, we, we, we certainly aren't uh, opposed to HomeKit or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, home automation is a, is a thicket of different com- you know, competing products. And uh, do you think it needs uh, something like HomeKit to, to make it you know, sort of take off? Well, so everybody has talked about the smart home world as a kind of a similar thing as with uh, VHS versus beta or something like that, where we're just still in a transitional world where all these competing technologies are still fighting for for dominance. And we don't even know exactly what every customer is willing to buy or you know what everyone's still trying to figure out the best solution for the product experience. And uh, HomeKit is addressing one segment of the market from Apple's point of view, and there's so many other competing points of view still in the field. So our history, uh, it goes back almost seven years when we began to build a HomeKit, uh, sorry, a home automation and smart home um, app-controlled software infrastructure that we called Wemo. Um, we we really pioneered that and wanted to build a, a, a and we built a an app controlled, very multifaceted world of interconnected devices. So the idea was you don't need to switch between different apps to control things, and you mm-hmm. should be able to interrelate the devices that you're controlling with one another, so that their behavior could have something to do uh, with one another, so you could connect behaviors together which could have some great benefits uh, with if this, then that. So if technology, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great power. So it requires a tremendous investment in infrastructure and engineering and design and user experience. And Wemo has done, I think, a phenomenal job. I think it's the best uh, system out there today. So um, HomeKit is another avenue for in another way and often in a maybe cheaper way to get into that kind of um, world of smart home. But I would hope that people who are interested in this take a closer look at the specific capabilities of Wemo versus HomeKit to see the differences. It's quite uh, quite a, a big difference in the way they that you are able to connect and control. What are they? You know, I'm curious now. So what are the differences? So again, like I'm not a huge technical expert when it comes to Wemo, but uh, the great power comes with the fact that you can easily connect many, many different devices in your home under one umbrella inside one app. So it'd be very easy to control many different lights, many different uh, devices. And we, we offer some, some technical capabilities like dimming and other sort of subtle controllable features that home that other home automation technologies can't really cover but i have to admit to you that i'm really not uh, a daily i don't have a daily connection with the wemo so yeah, yeah. i'm probably not your best interview partner for wemo okay well i thought that was what apple's new home app did as well for for, for home kit but you know like you i don't have um you know i haven't even dipped my toes in those waters so uh, i'm not sure what the capabilities are or not 
Yeah, and and you you find you know I, I meet many people who say my whole house is full of Wemo devices. I'm really excited about it. How's it going to work with HomeKit? And I I have to say I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too bad because I think you know the idea that Siri uh, could, you know could be used to control your house is compelling, but. Uh, it's still it's still early days yet, isn't it? I mean, I don't see that there's the, you know, it doesn't look as though that it's really taken off in a big way uh, yet. Yeah, and and there is a definitely controllability with, uh, for example, Amazon Echo can control uh, Wemo devices, and there are many other ways to to make uh, use of Wemo that way. It's very very technically advanced, great user experience. Right. Cool. Okay. So earlier you mentioned um, screen protection. Yes. So let me let me ask you about that. What what are you guys doing in screen protection? I'm glad you asked about that. So so what is what is what is a sexier subject than screen protection? After all, that's why you save it for last. Save the best for last. It's a kind of a fascinating world. It's full of cheap products. Lots right. of very poorly made stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's another one of those subjects where most people say, when you ask them, would you like to protect your screen? They say, yes. Have you done it yourself? They Most people say no. Some people say, yeah, I've tried that and it's terrible. And then they show you their phone and they have like bubbles under the screen protector. Right, yeah. You mentioned it. screen protection. I think bubbles, yeah. And, and uh, as you should because that's the normal, I think, the, the way most people experience it. Uh, we recognize that there is a better way to do that. We recognize that um, most humans shouldn't be touching a screen protector and putting it on their screen, or anyone should be, let me be more specific, nobody should be ever asked to put that on by hand. It's just not something humans can do very well. And, you know, short of hiring robots, what can we do uh, is what we asked us there. And and uh, we actually developed a really fantastic way to improve that experience for people. And we developed a system that you can find um, at, for example, at Apple stores today. It's called ScreenCare Plus. It's uh, really designed to allow people who work in Apple stores to be very, very confident when they apply screen protectors. And in fact, so we we um, offer a number of different types of screen protectors, but the real wonderful thing here is that um, when you do buy a screen protector in the Apple store, the uh, Apple store employee will use our system to apply the screen protector to your phone and it will come out 100% correct every single time. Hmm. Okay, so it's a system of putting a, a, a protector onto your screen that's available at the Apple stores. Is, is it available in other, in other stores too? It's available in other stores as well, but it's going to look a little bit different. It's going to be a slightly different experience. You know, mm -hmm. we, we developed a Screencare Plus system for the Apple Store, and it has its own look and feel, and it's very refined, and we're incredibly proud of it because it makes the Apple Store employees quite happy you know, when they work with this system to, um, to make the experience better. You know, the, the job they have to do is to keep their customers happy. And to be to make them satisfied, and that's what this helps them to do. They are all really professional people, and uh, it's it's nice for them to have a a set of tools that are really si simple that um, take a high quality screen protector from Belkin and allow that to be applied 100% correctly every single time. It takes that fear factor out of it, makes it quick and easy. It's kind of fun to watch if you've ever seen how, it. How does it work? What does it do? Well, you know, some of us, uh, you and I, are certainly old enough to remember Polaroid cameras. When you when you pull a Polaroid, uh, that's a satisfying 
memory I have. It's like pulling Polaroid film out of Polaroid cameras. Uh-huh. It's a little bit like that. Imagine your phone uh, along with a screen protector is inserted into a little mechanical contraption. We call it the applicator. And then you pull on a tab. And when you pull that tab out, you remove the protective layer from the screen protector. And that then affixes the screen protector perfectly aligned to the phone's screen. And uh, we have a, a number of ways to keep out dust and to help it stay really clean. And uh, it's it's really kind of fun to watch people get big eyes and they're, they're kind of delighted to see it. And um, there are some other benefits. You know, there's a little trash container and a nice work surface and some, some tools that we've developed that um, are kind of fun to use. And uh, yeah, it's it's making that experience that used to be a really nerve-wracking thing for most people who work in stores a uh, a more more um, calm and an enjoyable experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. I'd love to uh, to, to check that out. Um, screen protection, like you said, you know, I, I I walked around with a with a with a um, badly scratched uh, my previous iPhone. I scratched it like the first couple of days I got it, and then I had to live with this scratch that bugged me. Every time I looked at it, for it's more annoying. Than a year. It's annoying. I, I always tell people uh, I've dumped my first uh, iPhone 6s within 22 hours of of receiving it onto the floor before I had a chance to put our own screen protector on it. That was also a great experience. <laughs> um, so, but it's a great ex- a great example for how you can really uh, cause some disruption to the retail experience. You know, the the fact that. Um, uh, industrial design and user experience, along with some really great engineering uh, talent that we employ here, has the ability to reach into those areas. Is I think is a testament to what we at Belkin have been able to achieve over the years. It's a level of capability that is just way beyond the standard accessory maker's capabilities. It's just uh, an entirely different animal. You know, we're we're not somewhere in, in Hong Kong or in not, nothing against Hong Kong, but uh, we're, we're an authentically U.S.-based, California-born-and-raised and bred company. And we do things here that are innovative. They're tremendously technically challenging, very sophisticated, and we pride ourselves on really pushing hard on ID, UX, retail experience, and, and providing people with products that are better and better every year that um, that hopefully build our brand to where we want it to be uh, and continue to, to be more desirable. That's all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank Oliver Sile of Belkin's Innovation Design Group. You can find out more about Belkin at www.belkin.com. That's B-E-L-K-I-N, belkin.com. That was Kanan's Corner, a weekly podcast about the world of Apple. New episodes come out every week. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And if you like the show, please leave a review or a rating. And please check out cultofmag.com and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, we're at cultofmag. And Facebook is facebook.com forward slash cultofmag. See you next time.